So Al, Al had lived an amazing, amazing life. He uh, had an outstanding war record. He served, Al served as the uh, chief of staff of the North American Treaty Organization, a very strategic and important role. Al then became the uh, chief of staff for President Nixon and then chief of staff also for President Ford. He had position, he had prestige, he had power, he had authority. Uh, he was set. He then became the Secretary of State for President Ronald Reagan. And Alexander Haig is most known not for everything I just described to you, all the things that he accomplished and did in the places of position and power and authority that he held. He is most famous for one sentence that he said. Anyone remember the great quote, Ronald Reagan had been wounded by an attempted assassination, was taken away by ambulance to the hospital, and thankfully, in God's providence, survived. But in that instant of time, Alexander Haig was famous for one great statement. Remember what it was? I'm in charge here. And that was such a bold statement that it made the cover of Time magazine. I'm in charge here. And Alexander Haig apparently forgot that the Secretary of State is a notch below the Vice President, who at that time was uh, almost, or going to be President Bush, was then Vice President to Ronald Reagan. And Alexander Haig had the boldness, I guess, the audacity. At least he wanted to let people know that things were under control. But he was not in charge. <laughs> he was not in charge. But you and I live in a world... You and I live in a culture where it's very common, very prominent for people to want to have control and to be in charge. That's a common need. Uh, for some people, it's a very high need, and we call those people control freaks. There you go. But people struggle for authority and control at multiple levels. It happens at the governmental level. Presidents versus Congress, and there's a tug and pull and a tug of war, if you will. Um, it happens in the sports world. It's often fascinating to me to see tug of war for power and authority that takes place between ball players and managers or ball players and owners. Uh, years ago, the common struggle with the Los Angeles Lakers was a conflict between Kobe Bryant and Shaquille O'Neal as to who was going to be in control and who was going to dominate. Uh, later, there was a power struggle between Kobe Bryant and Coach Phil Jackson. And, and later, another power struggle between Kobe and, and uh, Jerry Buss, the owner of the team. Seeking control, seeking authority. It happens in churches, too. Have you ever noticed this? No, that never happens in churches. Well, sure it does. Um, one of the most common power challenges in churches is you have the pioneers, the group of people that founded the church, they established the church, they've labored for years, they love their church. And then new people come along, I call them the homesteaders, because now they're staking out turf that the pioneers have claimed, and there's a, a struggle that takes place. This happens in, in most churches, if not all. There's another common power struggle with authority and control in many churches between the elders and a pastor. And I'm so grateful for the elders at our church because I don't have a sense of that at all from them. I, I feel support, I feel love, I feel encouragement, I feel hope and help, and I value that a lot. But it happens in a lot of churches where there's that, that struggle. It happens in families. Any of you notice this in your marriage sometimes? There's the little control thing back and forth. Uh, it happens between parents and their children, right? Especially when the child turns 13. That, you know, it just, it happens. It's a common thing in life for people to want to have control. Most of us want to have a measure of control over our lives. And one of the amazing things to me is, as we come to Mark's Gospel again this morning in the first chapter, that what Mark is all about is establishing the authority of Jesus. He's presenting Jesus as the servant. And he's presenting Jesus as a servant who has authority. Now, normally, servants don't have much authority, do they? What's their responsibility? To serve. 
And their responsibility is to serve the one in authority, the one in charge, exactly. And so here's Mark, and he's seeking to establish that Jesus has authority. Right out of the gate in Mark 1, 1, it begins. Because we first have Jesus' authority declared by John the Baptist. John's message was what? Repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. Turn from your sin. Repent and return to God. Come back. And he says, there's one coming after me who's mightier than I am. I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie his shoe. I baptize you with water, but he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And so John declares the authority of Jesus. Jesus kind of declares his own authority when he comes to be baptized. He's identifying himself with the, the many who had repented and were baptized by John the Baptist, repenting from sin and turning to God. And Jesus identified himself with this movement back to God. Jesus' authority is then declared even further when God sends the Holy Spirit in, in the shape or form of something that appeared similar to a dove. And then He spoke from heaven. And what did He say? This is My beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And so Jesus' authority is being declared loudly. Then Jesus goes off into the wilderness and His authority is demonstrated because He's victorious over Satan in that time of testing and temptation. Jesus has authority. In fact, He's so authoritative, Mark in the next paragraph says that Jesus walks... And he calls four men, Andrew, Peter, James, and John, to follow him. And what do they do? They follow him. They leave everything behind. They leave their nets, their livelihood, their families. They follow Jesus. Mark is establishing that this servant has authority. And as we come to Mark chapter 1 this morning, and beginning in verse 21, we're going to see that Mark is all about the authority of, that Jesus has. And so the way that I've outlined this, Jesus goes into the synagogue and first we see Jesus' authority over man's best teachers. We're going to look at that. Then we see Jesus' authority over Satan's best agents, worst agents. And then we're going to see that Jesus also has authority over man's worst enemies. And so let's look at that together. Let me read this passage and and then we'll take it apart and look at Jesus' authority. So Peter, James, and John, Andrew, all four of them have followed Jesus. And verse 21 of Mark 1 says, they went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and began to teach. They were amazed at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Just then there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet, and come out of him. Throwing him into convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. They were all amazed, so that they debated among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey Him. Immediately the news about Him spread everywhere into all the surrounding district of Galilee. And immediately after they came out of the synagogue, they came into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law was lying sick with a fever and immediately they spoke to Jesus about her. And He came to her and raised her up, taking her by the hand and the fever left her. And she waited on them. When evening came, after the sun had set, they began bringing to him all those who were ill, all those who were demon-possessed. And the whole city had gathered at the door. And he healed many who were ill with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who he was. And so Mark is putting Jesus' authority on display. Some people get authority because they inherit authority. Queen Elizabeth serves as the Queen of England. Why? What qualified her to do that? Her dad was the king before her. That's it. She inherited authority. Some people have authority delegated to them by somebody else. 
When parents go out for a date in the evening and go to dinner and they entrust the care of their children to a babysitter, they're delegating their authority to that babysitter while they're gone. Sometimes authority is simply delegated. Sometimes it's earned. College professor has been to school. He's earned his Ph.D. He has authority in the classroom. Politicians have authority because they've earned it by being elected. There's earned authority. There's also inherent authorities. People have authority just because of who they are. You've heard the phrase natural born leader. So Jesus has authority that's been delegated to him by who? God the Father. He has authority that is his that he has earned because of the miracles and signs that he performs. And Mark is all about that in his gospel. Jesus has authority also that's inherent simply because of who He is. The Son of God, the eternal God in human flesh. And so Jesus the servant has authority. That's why we use a simple four-letter word to speak of Him. We speak of Jesus as the Lord. There you go. He has authority. And so here Jesus comes into the synagogue... And the typical synagogue, I put a couple of pictures up here so you can kind of see the ruins of a synagogue that's been uncovered, archaeologists have looked at. And these two pictures kind of show you the synagogue was a place of learning. The temple was the place where sacrifices took place, where worship took place. But the synagogue was a place of learning. The typical synagogue was divided in half, men on one side, women on the other. And... Oftentimes the the local rabbi would speak and teach. Sometimes a guest would come in and speak. Sometimes a total stranger unknown to the group would come in and would have the opportunity to speak. And if you followed the ministry of Jesus, he goes into synagogues wherever he goes. The Apostle Paul used the same strategy to go into the synagogue and speak. So Jesus comes into the synagogue there in Capernaum and he teaches. And the response of the people is what? The text says they were amazed. Literally, that word means to be struck a blow. They were stunned at Jesus' teaching. Why? Well, it tells us in the text, if you read it carefully, what was it that stunned them? He taught with authority and not as the scribes. The scribes were the experts in the Old Testament. The scribes were the ones who copied the scrolls, tediously, meticulously, carefully copying God's Word so that there would be more copies available of the Torah, the scroll, the law. The, The scribes were called doctors of the law. They were the experts. But when a scribe taught, his method of teaching and his claim for authority was referring to others who had gone before him. And so he would teach and say, well, Rabbi Shammai, he said this about this text. And Rabbi Hillel, he said this about this text. And when Jesus spoke, he said what? You've heard it said, but I say, he was the authority. He didn't point to other authorities. He was the authority. He didn't stand before the congregation and say, John MacArthur said, Chuck Swindoll said, Jack Hayford said. He stood before the congregation and said, what? I say to you. And so they were stunned because it was so different. Jesus had authority. He spoke with authority. You and I live in a world populated by authorities. You and I are exposed to those authorities. Dr. Phil, Oprah, Dr. Laura, the Discovery Channel, History Channel, and on and on it goes. Time Magazine. What, whatever it is that you expose yourself to in print or in media, we are told these voices are authoritative. And sadly, many Christians, along with the rest of the world in which we live, are deceived 
by those who claim to be authorities. The only authoritative truth on this planet is found where? In God. And God has spoken, and if someone has said, ooh, I just did a scribe thing. Jesus has spoken, and if somebody else said, he has not stuttered. Jesus, God has spoken. And God has spoken truth where? In the pages of this book. The Scripture says, Thy word is what? Truth. This book is authoritative. This book is God's word. God has spoken and he has not stuttered. And yet, tragically and sadly, most Christians find their authoritative information on the television, on the internet, in the magazines they read, the books they read. And I'm struck by the fact that Mark goes to such pains to demonstrate to us that Jesus is the authority, not those who are regarded as the authorities around us. And our response to that simple truth, that thy word is truth, our response to that simple thought should be what? What should we do with that truth? Read it. Follow it. Share it. Spend time reading, meditating, studying, teaching it, sharing it. When I was pastoring the church out in Rancho Cucamonga, I had a Bible study with about, oh, I don't know, it would vary from probably 10, 12 or whatever people on Wednesday nights. And one of the dear gentlemen in the, in the group, I, I just love Don a lot. I got way too many Dons in my life. My, I confuse my wife all the time. I say, well, Don said, which one? Um, so this, this Don, just a, just a wonderful, wonderful friend. But almost every Wednesday night, in the middle of this Bible study conversation, he would begin and he would say something like this. Well, on the History Channel last week, well, last week on the Science Channel, because this older retired guy, none of you would fall into this category of being, some of you might be older, some of you might be retired, but hopefully very few of you fall into the next part of his life. He spent his entire day doing what? Watching television. That was his authority. And it just drove me crazy at every Bible study. The History Channel says, and I kept wanting to come back and say, uh, the Bible says, God says, thy word is truth. Uh, the book of Hebrews in chapter 4 says the Word of God is living. It's powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It divides between the bone and the marrow, the soul and the spirit. It's alive. It's powerful. Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is God-breathed. He's the source. He's the origin. That alone ought to drive us to the Word, right? But it goes on and it says God... God's Word, all Scripture is inspired. It's God-breathed. And it's, what's the next word? Profitable. It's beneficial. It's available to help us, the service. It has benefits. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God, the woman of God, would be perfect, mature, lacking nothing. Authority. What's your source of authority? And if we really believe that this book is our source of authority, if we really believe that God has spoken, then why do we spend hours of our week watching television, hours of the week with Netflix, hours of the week reading other books, magazines, and neglect this book? Why do we do that? There's probably lots of reasons. But I'll tell you what, I think one of the tactics of the evil one is to keep you and me away from this book. 
I think one of the tactics of the devil and his minions is to occupy my life with a lot of good stuff. And because I'm so busy with good stuff, there's good stuff on television, right? No question. But what's the best? And so often in your life, and I confess in my life, the good becomes the enemy of the best. And I'm struck with the fact that Jesus' authority was so striking that those people were amazed, like they were struck a blow. Jesus has authority. He has authority over man's best teachers. The best trained college professors, the best trained people on the planet who the first name is DR. Jesus has authority. And then Mark tells us that in this synagogue, as Jesus is speaking, there's a man there with an unclean spirit. He's demon possessed, a malignant, evil spirit has possessed and taken control of this man. And I find myself wondering as I read this passage, because it it demonstrates Jesus' power and Jesus' authority over Satan's best agents, worst agents, however you want to describe them. But I find myself wondering, so was this guy, this demon-possessed guy, who was in the synagogue, was this the first time he'd visited that synagogue? Probably not. I doubt it too. So, if he'd been in the synagogue before, did he manifest demonic possession in his previous visits? Probably not. So, what is it about this visit with this man at the synagogue that brings out the manifestation of the evil spirit? Jesus. Jesus is there. And so... This, this, this demon, and by the way, the, the Jews believed, they believed, where this comes from, I don't know, but they believed that there were seven and a half million evil spirits loose on the planet. Yeah, that's a lot. That's a lot, right? This is even worse, Pauline. They believed that every single person has 10,000 evil spirits at each hand. So their their thinking processes were dominated in many ways by fear about evil spirits. So here's this demon-possessed man. And I would would say this is an extreme condition to be demon-possessed, right? It's one thing to be blind or deaf or crippled in some fashion. This guy is under the control of a demon, an evil spirit. His, His condition is critical. And... The comments that the Spirit makes reveal to us what He knows. He knows two things about Jesus. He knows Jesus' identity and He knows Jesus' power. He knows who Jesus is and He knows what Jesus can do. The Jews believed that if you knew someone's name, it gave you power over them. And so the demon says to Jesus, I know who you are. You're Jesus of Nazareth. And then he said, you're also what? The Holy One of God. So that demon's knowledge was right or wrong? Right on. Demons know who Jesus is. James says, you believe there's one God, you do well. But the demons believe and do what? Tremble. Belief belief isn't faith. So this demon knows who Jesus is. He's the Holy One of God. He nailed it. He knows exactly who Jesus is. But that gives him no power over Jesus. He also knows what Jesus is capable of. He knows what power Jesus has. He says to Jesus, have you come to do what? To destroy? (laughs) Did Jesus have the power, the authority, the ability to destroy? Absolutely. And so Jesus commands to the evil spirit, reveal his power, reveal his authority. He says to the evil spirit, be quiet and come out. That word be quiet is a fun word. It's the word you would use of putting a muzzle on a vicious beast. Be quiet, be muzzled and come out. Jesus had authority. 
Wow. We're going to see more examples of demon possession. If you're reading with me, you know that in in about four more chapters, in chapter 5, Jesus is going to encounter a guy whose evil spirit is named Legion. Why? Because there's a whole boatload of demons inside that dude. We're going to see that in a few weeks or months or years. I don't know. Um, So Jesus has power and authority. He has authority over man's best teachers. He has authority over our enemy's worst agents. And he also has authority over our worst enemies. Because Jesus leaves the synagogue and he goes into Peter's home where Peter's mother-in-law is sick. She's sick with a fever. Dr. Luke in Luke's Gospel, if you were to compare these two chapters, Dr. Luke says she had a great fever. Why would Dr. Luke say that she had a great fever? Because he's a doctor. He knew. So this woman has this significant great fever. This one woman. And Jesus comes into Peter's home and, and takes her by the hand and lifts her up. She's healed. One woman. It's fascinating to me that this event, this story, this account of Jesus healing a soul individual is followed now by multitudes of people coming to the house. People with all manifestations of diseases. People that are demon-possessed. People that are crippled. People that are lame. People that are blind. almost said lying, get lame and blind together into one word. So Jesus heals one woman and then there's multitudes of people that come for healing. Jesus heals them all. I, there's, there's so many lessons found here, I think. Don't, don't you love the fact that Jesus cares about one person? One person matters to Jesus. If you're one person, you matter to Jesus. Isn't that cool? Jesus doesn't just care about hundreds, thousands. He does. But he doesn't just care for them. He cares for you and he cares for me. I just think that's a great, a great thought that flows out of this, this chapter here. That Jesus has authority. Jesus has power. We live in an age, it seems, maybe I just see this as I get older, but we live in an age where it just seems like A lot of people are so fearful. Just fearful. I mean, this this whole COVID thing, I mean, we could talk about fear. Well, I've already talked about fear several times over the last year. Um, But I find so many people are also fearful about health, fearful about disease. And when you hear the C word, it kind of strikes a little, you know, cancer, the C word. Do you ever find yourself thinking about the potential of having some kind of a life-threatening disease? Do you ever contemplate that? My father passed away in 08. He had dementia and Parkinson's. Both of which, from what I've read and studied, are hereditary. So what are the odds that I might develop dementia, or Parkinson's. What are the odds? I don't know, but it's something to think about if you want to think about it. My mother passed away in 2013 of Lou Gehrig's disease, ALS. And over the six months uh, that she manifested the consequences of that disease, I watched her going from being a strong, healthy 82-year-old woman to being totally incapable of doing anything for herself until the day that she passed away. And I remember early on when she was being diagnosed and I was researching and studying, uh, there's at least a small possibility of some studies suggesting that ALS is hereditary. I could get all worked up and worried about what might happen someday and be controlled by fear. 
I've experienced on two bike rides since January 9th, twice where I've had my heart rate go up into the 170s, which is very rare for me. Usually on a bike ride, my heart rate stays in the 120s, which isn't very high. And periodically, with a little bit of effort, it might push into the 130s. But to be at 170 is pretty high. But normally when my heart rate goes up, it comes down. What's the heart rate supposed to do when you get it up and you rest? So it's come down. Well, my event on March, or I'm sorry, my event on January 9th, my heart rate was elevated, my guess is about 10 minutes. It came down and I was fine and finished the rest of my bike ride. On March 13th, I had an event down here on the bike trail the morning of Joyce Morrow's memorial service. And my heart rate went up to 172. I saw it on my bike computer at 168, and I was having kind of shortness of breath, and so I slowed down my bike riding pace, and my heart rate stayed up. I stopped riding. My heart rate stayed up. It was up for 45 minutes. That's not good news. So I've been wearing a heart rate monitor. Thankfully, I don't have it today. But it's so easy to be stressed and concerned about health issues. We know far too much about all the diseases. And if you don't know enough, guess what? you got the Internet. And, of course, the Internet's authoritative. It only speaks truth. But I look at this passage and I realize that it doesn't matter what disease my mother had, what disease my father had. Ultimately, I shouldn't be that concerned. I ought to seek doctor's help, which I have, uh, regarding my heart rate thing. Um, I think I've got some solutions, but I'm talking to the doctor too. That's probably wisdom, right? Someone say right. I'm on the right path. Okay, there you go. But I read this passage about Jesus' authority, and guess what? He's bigger than cancer. He's greater than ALS. He's greater, mightier than Parkinson's. Who's in control of Roy's life and health and strength? The Lord is. And I, so I read this chapter, and I see here's this, this authoritative Lord Jesus. The servant with authority. He has more authority than the best teachers, the best authorities in the land. He had more authority than the best teachers in the land 2,000 years ago, and guess what? He still has more authority than the best teachers in the land. And He's entrusted to us the Word of God. He has more authority than the tactics, strategies of the evil one. More authorities. You know, you and I don't see, at least probably on our average day, we don't see this kind of a manifestation of demonic possession. But I I would suggest to you, if you probably wandered and served among some of the homeless population that's sitting here on the river, you find some people that you kind of wonder about, at least I have, And whether we call it a mental problem or whatever, I believe there's people that are demon-possessed. And I believe that we have an enemy. I believe that the Apostle Paul spoke truth when he said, We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers of darkness in high places. Aren't you glad our God is bigger, stronger, more powerful, mightier? I am. And he has authority over disease, illness. And one of the lessons you learn as you read through the Gospels, and if you're reading with me through the Gospels every month, one of the things that has to impress you is Jesus has amazing authority and amazing power over all different kinds of diseases, illness, sickness. And so I look at Jesus the servant. I look at Jesus the servant who has authority. He has power. And I would suggest to you this morning that my response to authority says a lot about the kind of person I am. 
But my response to Jesus' authority says a lot about the kind of Christian I am. How do you respond to the authority of Jesus? How do you respond to Jesus who is King of Kings, Lord of Lords? How do you respond to the one that the Scripture says that someday every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord? How do you respond? I wrote notes to myself. I learn here that I can trust Jesus with my mental life. He's Lord of truth. He's Lord of learning. I can trust Him with that mental activity that takes place here. But I need to invest time and energy in this book. I can trust the Lord Jesus with mental life. I can trust the Lord Jesus with spiritual life. He's Lord over demons. He's Lord over Satan. I can trust Him with my physical life. He's Lord of health and life and death. He is Lord. We sing that song, don't we? He is Lord. He is Lord. He's risen from the dead and He is Lord. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. I can trust Him. Since He's my teacher, I give Him my mind. Since He's my deliverer, I give Him my spirit and soul. Because He's my healer, I give Him my body. And so the question that I would ask you this morning as we think about the authoritative Jesus is this. Is Jesus in charge here? And you've heard me say many times, He's in charge. He's the senior pastor of this church. But more personally, is Jesus in charge here? Is Jesus in charge here? Have you given to Jesus? Have you surrendered to Jesus all that you are, all that you have? Is it surrendered to Jesus? Have you surrendered to Lord Jesus your physical body, your physical health? Have you surrendered to the Lord Jesus your heart, your soul, your mind, your body? Is Jesus Lord of your entertainment choices? Is Jesus Lord of what you choose to watch on television? The movies you watch on Netflix or at the theater, now that they're back open. Is Jesus Lord of your entertainment choices? The books you read, the magazines you read. Is He Lord? Is Jesus Lord of your finances, your personal resources? Is Jesus Lord of where you invest the dollars He puts into your hand? Is He Lord of of all the resources that He entrusts to you. I have a friend who's just begun a new job. Got his first real paycheck because he works on commission. And he was all excited this week because he got his first paycheck. It's the biggest paycheck he's had in his entire life. And he is stoked beyond belief. Biggest paycheck ever, by several thousand dollars in one month. And our whole conversation was about all the things he could buy now. I can do this, I can buy that, I can buy this, I can buy that. You know, if Jesus were to drop into your lap a large sum of funds, is your first inclination to ask Him what the best use of those resources are? I guess I need to have that conversation with my friend. Is He Lord? Have you submitted? Is He Lord of the habits of your life? The things that you engage in? Is He Lord is He the authority you look to, the authority you respond to with the habits of your life? 
Is He Lord of your anger? Lord of your anxiety, your worry, your fear, your pride? Is He Lord? Have I surrendered? Have you surrendered to Him? And that's why I ask this simple question. Is Jesus in charge here? Is Jesus in charge here in your life today? Is Jesus in charge? Typically, we have areas of our life that we kind of keep Jesus out of. My friends, the Bluegrass Brethren from our church in Long Beach, Tim, the leader of the group, has written a song called The Closet, and he talks about inviting Jesus into the dining room and inviting Jesus into the kitchen and the bedroom. But he's, there's this closet, Lord, and that's where I keep my stuff. You stay out of there. And as he develops his song, finally he opens that closet and unlocks it and invites the Lord to clean out all the junk. Maybe some of us need to clean out the, the closet in our life. This morning, if you're a follower of Jesus... The question is, is He Lord? Is He in charge here? And this morning, if you've not yet come to put your faith and your trust in Jesus as Savior from sin, if you've not yet to come and put your confident trust in Him as the, the eternal God become man who paid the price for sin on the cross and offers forgiveness pardon eternal life and invite you to come to Him and embrace Him as Savior and Lord. What keeps you from doing that? What hinders you from doing that? Come to Jesus. Make Him Lord of your life as well. There's a chorus I love to sing. I sing it often on my bike rides, probably when I'm by myself and my friends aren't with me. But it says, Jesus, be the Lord of all. Jesus be the Lord of all. Jesus be the Lord of all. The kingdoms of my heart. The rest of the song says this. In my heart are kingdoms of a world that's all my own. Kingdoms that are only seen by myself and God alone. In the past when I tried to rule my world, it just seemed to fall apart. So please, Jesus, be the Lord of all, the kingdoms of my heart. I guess I only fool myself, for I said I've yielded all. But in a secret corner of my heart was a kingdom that did not fall. I surrender now, make my heart your throne, rule its kingdoms great and small. For if you're not Lord of everything, then you're not Lord of all. Jesus, I surrender all. Jesus, I surrender all. Jesus, I surrender all the kingdoms of my heart. Lord, my prayer this, this morning is simply that You would allow each one of us, by the power of Your Holy Spirit, just in this quiet moment to take inventory. Because if You're not Lord of all, you're not Lord at all. And I pray this morning for anyone here who finds themselves acknowledging the reality that yes, there's a kingdom in their heart that they've protected and kept you away from. There's a kingdom in their heart that they've not surrendered to you. The Lord, this morning, you would give that one courage, confidence to surrender to you. That they would say to you this morning, Jesus, be the Lord of all, the kingdoms of my heart. Jesus, I surrender all, the kingdoms of my heart. Lord, we want to be an army of surrendered men and women 
We want to be an army of men and women that you can use, that you can empower, that you can work through in reaching others with the gospel message. We want to be those kind of people. And so, Lord, help us this morning clearly, honestly, to take inventory and surrender to You. Lord, we surrender to You our finances. We surrender to You our entertainment choices. We surrender to You our health, even life itself. You are Lord, and we are not. You have authority. We do not. And so we surrender afresh to you this morning. Jesus, be the Lord of all the kingdoms of my heart. Make that our our prayer this morning, Lord Jesus, as we ask in your name. Amen. Please stand with us as we sing uh, the last song today. I know you know it because we sang it last week.
Amen, amen. Jesus is Lord. He truly, truly is. And if it would be helpful to you this morning, you'd like someone to pray with you, you've got something kind of going on in your life, your heart, you'd like someone to pray with you. If you want to come down here, I'll invite a couple of our elders or deacons to come and, and pray with you. We'd love to be able just to share a quiet time and to pray. If you need more quiet, go into my office and, and pray in there. You go into a, a world that thinks they know the truth. You go into a world that believes those authorities that are out there speaking to them. You go into a world possessing the truth. And I pray this week that God would give you opportunity. You've heard me say, let's pray for Bob, right? Pray for a burden for people that are lost. Pray for opportunity. And then pray for boldness to seize the opportunity and speak God's truth. Uh, Have a great week as the Lord Jesus opens those opportunities for you.